I was arrested at the airport and my two-month-old triplets were taken away. The officers handcuffed me, put a dark sack over my head and took me to a detention center. My oldest son had died in their hands. I still remember the words of the officers when I asked what my crime was. They said in code, being a vigor is a crime. We had to repeat in Chinese, in code, long live Xi Jinping, and in code, lenience for those who repent and punishment for those who resist. Each time I was electrocuted, my whole body would shake violently and I could feel the pain in my veins. I thought I would rather die than go through this torture. I begged them to kill me. And welcome back to the Global Inquirer. We are an undergraduate research podcast that uses case studies to explain how global trends are impacting real lives. And this week, I'm joined by Anna von Spakovsky, a third-year global securities and justice major. How you doing? Doing well. Thanks for having me. We have a great episode on tap for you guys this week. Anna was fortunate enough to sit down with a Uyghur American here in the Charlottesville community. And Anna, I just can you tell us a little bit about that experience? How What was that like? Yeah, absolutely. It was an incredibly powerful experience just because I got to see some really personal stories from him. And it was a little different from a lot of the episodes we've done because I wasn't just talking to, you know, a professor or an expert. I was talking to someone who has family that is experiencing what we're talking about today. And I did just want to make a little note about why we're being a bit vague about who this person is and some specifics of his life. I have talked to some people whose family has actually been put into camps just because they have contacts with people who are abroad. So we just want to be really careful about what we say just for everyone's safety. So in the interest of privacy, we're going to refer to our interviewee as John throughout this episode. So Anna, can you give me a little bit of background for maybe some of the listeners who are not aware yet about what the actual problem is facing Uyghurs? Yeah, of course. So just for a very brief overview, Uyghurs are a Muslim ethnic minority in the Xinjiang region of China, and it was incorporated into China by the communists in 1949. They have a history of repression from the Chinese communists um, for separatism and then also They have a history of repression from the communists because of separatism and then also to homogenize them into the Han Chinese identity. But things have ramped up first after 9-11, just because the Chinese authorities were then able to use this discourse of terrorism and counterterrorism in the Xinjiang region. And then most recently after 2014, when reports started coming in that Uyghur Muslims were being put into internment camps. As of right now, estimates have it at about a million in these camps, though it could be as high as two or three million. Again, there's not a lot of information just because of the repressive nature of the state. So although um, I'm sure you guys love listening to us talk about these issues all day, uh, I think it'd be a lot more pertinent if we actually sat down and listened to your interview. So let's roll that. So I just first want to start by asking you a little bit about your family background. My parents, they both immigrated to 
the United States for political asylum. Um, my father was born in the city of Kashgar and my uh, mother was born in the city of Urumqi, which is the capital of East Turkestan. And uh, my, I have two older sisters who are both like around like 10 years older than me. And they were both born in uh, Urumqi. So they all immigrated to America and I was born in the United States. So I was born a citizen. And so I never, I had the chance to go back and I guess visit my like motherland. Um, especially now because this situation is uh, really dangerous because you have the chance of like being detained. And um, I, I guess no one wants to take a chance of going back even if they are United States citizens because um, everyone in my family, uh, they have gotten their uh, U.S. citizenship, but it's just simply deemed like too dangerous to go back. So I want to focus in on one of the things you said in that. Um... You said East Turkestan, and I think some of the people listening might not be familiar with that term in a lot of the news reports. Um, it's called like Xinjiang. So could you just explain that a little bit? There's a lot of like, I guess, history that goes into it. So um, the area uh, that I call my country uh, is called East Turkestan. Uh, and uh, ever since the, uh, I guess, Chinese government going back to the Qing Dynasty in 1876 kind of took over that whole region that whole area has been dubbed uh, Xinjiang. And in English, uh, when, it's actually, when it's translated to English, uh, it means new region. And so it just kind of just means like new land, new territory. Uh, and that's what you hear in, in the news a lot of days, because uh, that's kind of like the official term um, used by like other countries and uh, media outlets. But if you talk to any uh, Uyghur person, they're always going to refer to East Turkestan. So... You talked before about, like, for example, your parents facing discrimination, and then obviously things have escalated to people being actually detained. Do you know at all why things have intensified? Right now, I don't know his name, but the current, um, I guess, governor of the, of the region of Xinjiang has been recently wrapping up, ramping up the sorts of really strict policies and um, discrimination has been currently happening and this can be seen as a pattern to get more like political power. Um, you can see what has previously happened in Tibet, where they've also done similar like similar uh, things with really strict policy and trying to have a hold on their freedom of like expression and religion. And what's happening is a lot of a lot of governments, a lot of countries are really not acknowledging it due to, I guess, like the hegemony that China holds. And this includes even the Islamic countries. And there was recently a meeting with a large group of large Muslim countries, such as like Pakistan and many others. They held a meeting with China and a lot of people are expecting these countries to sort of speak up on the matter because everyone living in East Turkestan are predominantly Muslim. However, uh, no one said anything uh, due to the fact that China holds such strong ties in trade and, and in politics with these countries, especially with Pakistan, because they're, uh, China is trying to expand their One Belt, One Road uh, initiative, uh, trying to expand their economic power and trying to hold more trade relationships with these neighboring countries. So growing up, did your parents tell you any stories about what it was like for them? Yeah, yeah. They, I guess they used to tell me a lot of stories like good uh, and bad. My sisters would tell me how good it was 
when they all like were living together before I was born. Uh, they would tell me how they would have like maids coming in the house, cleaning up after them. And the way of describing it seemed like it was a very, I guess, lavish like lifestyle. Uh, both my parents, they were both university professors and my sisters at the time, they were just kind of like children, but they were like enjoying all the nice amenities that, come, that came from like their jobs. Uh, at the same time, uh, growing up, they also described how there would be a lot of like discrimination um, or other sorts of like I guess, negative aspects. Um, slowly, they would try to, uh, the Chinese government would try to phase out um, Uyghur, the Uyghur language. Uh, they would try to phase out the language for being taught in uh, schools. So right now, uh, the first language that they try to teach in uh, Uyghur schools is Chinese instead of, uh, the, instead of Uyghur. And a lot has changed, uh, I guess, for the worse ever since then my parents have immigrated. Another important point is that some of this repression is more indirect. For example, there's been massive pushes for the immigration of Han Chinese to the region and for the redevelopment of traditional Uyghur neighborhoods, which basically involves tearing down their traditional architecture and building buildings in more of the you know, mainstream um, Chinese type. One of the things that we talked about a lot was what day-to-day -day life really looks like living in Xinjiang. Yeah, I think that it's important to understand the severity of what's happening in these camps. Um, recently, a lot of people have been kind of comparing these to um, Nazi concentration camps, and for good reason, because a lot of things happening in these camps are, I would say, on that level. Last year, November, uh, there's this one uh, woman who's detained. Her name's Mehrigultursun, and I am 29 years old. I am Uyghur. Over the last three years, I was taken to Chinese government detention centers three times. They forced us to take unknown pills and drink some kind of white liquid. The pill caused us to lose consciousness and reduced our cognition level. The white liquid caused loss of menstruation in some women and extreme bleeding in others and even death. In the camps, I met a 23-year-old woman named Patam Khan. Her crime was attending a wedding in 2014 that was held according to Islamic traditions, where people did not dance, sing, or drink alcohol. She said 400 people who attended that wedding were all taken to the camps. When she was taken, she had left her two kids in the field. She agonized every day about where her children were. One night, she suddenly dropped to the floor and stopped breathing. Several people with masks came and dragged her away. So I think that what's going on in these camps are not just prisons. You could say like to a certain extent, uh, they're just like, they could be compared to concentration camps. There are reports of Uyghurs having their DNA uh, tested, sampled, recorded. There are also um, reports uh, of human organ extraction to be sold in the black market. All of this is happening within the camps. These Uyghurs are being held in these camps for like such a long time. And when they do come out, um, from what I've heard, they kind of come out as like a different person. So it's not just simply like a prison on, on face value. A lot, more, a lot more happens in there.
So now I'd like to talk a little bit about the clip we had at the beginning of our episode. This was testimony that was given by Mira Goldterson in November of 2018 in front of Congress. I thought it was important to include her story because she's a little different from John. Unlike him, she didn't grow up in the United States, but she has just recently come here. And it brings in a different dimension into the story. You know, where are these refugees now? What are their lives like? Do they still have family in the region that are in danger? I think that's a really interesting point, that kind of delineation. And it makes me think, you know, what what is the current state of these refugees? Um, have they been able to escape? Uh, where do they live? What What refuge have they found? As you can imagine, it is pretty hard to get out of the country, but there are people that have been able to. There are some refugees actually in our community right now as well, but the journey is harder for a lot of other refugees. Some countries actually are forcibly returning them to China, such as Egypt and Thailand. In 2015, for example, Thailand returned nearly 100 Uyghurs to China. Since the beginning of Chinese communist rule, the proportion of Uyghurs in the region has shrunk from 75% to 45%. So they're becoming more and more of a minority. These Uyghur students studying in Chinese universities, they wanted to study abroad. And originally there wasn't really any intention of leaving Egypt to go go to any other uh, countries or areas, but that was what the Chinese government was fearing. And so they did call basically all those uh, studying abroad Uyghur students to come back. And while some did, some was re- some were really hesitant and they were kind of resisting to, to come back. And they were, and the Chinese government uh, went to the lengths of essentially uh, contacting the students' parents and telling them and forcing the parents to tell their uh, sons or daughters to go back. And once you hear that, once you hear your own parents telling you to come back, uh, that becomes really convincing. And not all, not a lot of these students know that they're being their parents are basically forced to tell their sons or daughters to come back by these Chinese officials. And while some were able to uh, leave Egypt to go to the near, nearby countries such as Turkey, who is really supportive of Uyghurs, or even to the U.S., uh, some of which I know that uh, my my uh, my mom told me some some have indeed left. Uh, the Chinese government has, what you said, they came into Egypt and essentially detained these Uyghur students on essentially foreign soil, and the Egyptian government kind of let that happen. It's just, it's it's really heartbreaking to imagine. I mean, I go to school two hours from where I live, and sometimes I get homesick and want to go home on the weekends, and I think people can can really empathize with these students that are that are being cut off from their families and cut off from their home. The Chinese government is constantly tracking what you write, what you type. Um, so if you're Uyghur, you have to be really careful when you're typing to anyone outside the U.S. So my parents, when they try to contact their brothers or sisters, they kind of have to talk in a sort of um, discreet, like coded language. So if I have a relative that has been locked up or detained, for example, they would say, uh, you're for example, uncle has been sick, and that would be like the code word for them being detained. There are all sorts of other codes or kind of other ways to get around the censorship. And after, I guess, every conversation, my mom tells me that like my, brother, my uncle would kind of say, like, praise China, like, just to like make sure whoever's tracking them 
is kind of like knowing that what they're doing isn't inherently wrong. So you can almost make out this war going on between Chinese influence and U.S. or U.N. influence. And, you know, these refugees are really caught up in the middle. So clearly from you know, this harrowing interview that you had and all these really terrible stories, it, it prompts the question, what is being done? What is, what is the United States doing? What is the community around them doing? Um, how do we move forward? I can't think of another word except appalling that there isn't more international outrage. I know the UN has talked about it a bit. Um, one of the officials called for like independent investigators, but but other than that, I haven't seen a lot of concrete action, and it's it's scary. Yeah, I would say like even even other countries that have decided to like hold their own investigation or uh, diplomats that do want to know what's currently happening in these camps uh, when they are essentially escorted by Chinese officials. They're not really seeing what's truly happening. Uh, these uh, Uyghur detainees, they will essentially sing a song or they will, rep they will say to these, like, these diplomats saying like, nothing wrong is happening here. Like, I'm not being hurt in any way. However, uh, these uh, diplomats or even these like journalists who have also uh, went on these trips to these camps, uh, they, they would like state that it doesn't really seem like they're telling the truth. And so uh, it's, it is currently really hard to get to the bottom of it. Um, however, I think that, um, I think that uh, with what's currently happening, uh, more pressure is being applied on the Chinese government. And so they've gone from kind of denying the existence of these camps However, when like, you know, photograph evidence have shown up, um, especially from like eagle eye view, like from satellites that clearly show that they exist. They went to saying that, oh, they're just only vocational educational camps, just um, kind of training these Uyghurs for the workforce. Um, however, once like the testimonials came out, especially Congress, uh, when journalists decided to come in uh, into uh, East Turkestan and visit these camps and report that all these atrocities are happening. They recently stated that they need these camps to kind of control the extremist terrorism that has happened, um, so they say. And so I think that with all this pressure being applied, I'm hoping that um, as the truth becomes more clear, hopefully something will happen from this. One positive thing that's happening is a conversation, and, and that's always the first step. There is more visibility to what's going on. Um, in 2017, Human Rights Watch released a 117-page document talking about all the abuses that they were able to discover are going on. But unfortunately, there really hasn't been a lot of political momentum associated with this. There have been some calls from the UN for independent investigators to go into these camps and really report on the conditions. But other than that, there hasn't been a lot done. And some of that is because of China's power on the world stage, but some of it is also because of the ambiguity of what's going on. We do have information, 
but we still don't have a full picture of what's going on. And we also don't have a clear legal definition of what's going on. Some people have called this genocide. Some people have called it cultural genocide. Unfortunately, there is a distinction between the two, and cultural genocide doesn't actually have a legal basis under international humanitarian law. And obviously the problem with genocide is that by labeling any situation genocide, it it creates these international pressures and sets forth these mechanisms that countries kind of have to act on, and in doing so kind of might threaten other international efforts and talks, developments, what have you. So it is kind of a failing of both our international legal and kind of linguistic frameworks that we work under. Absolutely. But the question also remains, do we need to categorize exactly what's happening? Or can we just look at the myriad of abuses that we've seen and recognize that that's enough for action? And with that, that is the end of this episode and the end of our season. We want to give a big shout out and thank you to all of our listeners out there who have been with us since season one and have tuned in for our episodes. Um, We hope to continue to make great content for you. Also, big shout out to Andy, our technical director, who works so very hard behind the scenes to uh, make these podcasts sound as good as they do, Uh, and as well as our editor-in-chief, Emmy Lockwood, uh, for all the work she does in outreach and uh, pulling all the strings to make sure that this podcast gets uh, produced each week. Another thank you to all of our researchers who work so hard and to the Institute of Humanities and Global Cultures for their partnership and letting us use their space. And last but not least, thank you to the International Relations Organization at the University of Virginia uh, for footing the bill and giving us the support that we need to produce such great content. Uh, If you like this episode, give us a like or a comment. You can stay up to date with what we're doing throughout the summer and what we've done in the past on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We look forward to seeing you in the fall semester and hope you have a great summer.